In part two of my conversation with Rob Schwartz, we dig deep into the universal topics of death and grief. Join us as we have an honest and heartfelt conversation about navigating the complexities of loss on this episode of the Executor Help Podcast. This is the Executor Help Podcast. Learn how to settle an estate, pick an executor, and avoid family fights. For more information, go to davidedy.com. Now here's your host, David Edy. So another area that you cover in the book is coming to terms with your own death. Now, I'm just going to give a quick, quick story about myself. Seven years ago, I had open heart surgery and triple bypass. That was probably the first time I ever thought about death, uh, lying there the night before, and then also lying before they were about to wheel me into the uh, operating room. I had a picture of my son under my pillow, and I, I didn't know if I was going to wake up or not. I didn't struggle with death because I didn't know. I was just more afraid than anything. I see, and you know, writing my book, having the conversations I do have on the podcast, is that there is that fear of death. And your dad talks about it. I don't know, you know, why people struggle so far so much with the the fear of death. What is it your father feels would be the, the best way to look at it? Right. Well, he certainly thought a lot about death while he was ill. There's not as much about death in this book. There's some, but there's not as much because he didn't have a fatal diagnosis, which of course is what happened with Tuesdays with Maury. He had had a fatal diagnosis. He knew that he was going to go soon, but he definitely thought about death a lot. I think the first thing to answer your question is why are we so afraid of it is because it's a complete unknown. Nobody knows, right? People can come up with all kinds of ideas and we have religion that will tell you this, that, and the other thing, but nobody knows if that's true or not, if what they say has any validity or not. So it's a complete unknown. And that's the first thing. And the second thing is, obviously, it's an end to everything that has gone on for us so far. If there is a life after death, it's going to be completely different than what we're experiencing now. So people are attached to what they've created, their loved ones, this world. I mean, I think that that if you're not, we could discuss what kind of person you are. I mean, it's probably <laughs> possible in some in some, you know, Eastern sense, you're a realized master or something. If you're not, a, it's a Buddhist ideal not to be attached to this world. But I think that there's basically very, very few, if any, people who are actually like that. We're all attached to this world, obviously, from the ones we love to whatever we value in life. And all of that is going to go away or at least take a completely different form. So I think, you know, th those are the main two reasons why people are, are scared of death. And my father thought a lot about it, and especially in the two stays with Maury period, the last 16 months of his life, he came to this realization, I'm not sure if that's the right word, understanding or suggestion. He says this on the Ted Koppel interviews, if you've ever watched them, um, where uh, Ted is talking to him about death. He says, maybe the, the, the chasm between life and death isn't as far as we think. It is. And yeah, I mean, maybe it's not. And we'll all get there and we'll all find out. I mean, I have my own ideas of the afterlife, which are very influenced by Eastern thought, right? I spent a lot of right. time as I slept in Japan. That's the question I was going to ask you, based sure. on the, where you, because your travels, how do you look sure. at death? Is, sure. it, is it in line with what what your, your father thoughts? Well, I don't know. I mean, he's not here to I, answer that question particularly, but yes. I can tell you what I think, and it is very much in line with the 
with Asian thought and societies that I spent a lot of time in. I mean, reincarnation makes a lot of sense to me. And it makes particular sense because for the most part, we don't remember our past lives or our future lives or what have you. So it's a cycle. You go through it. And if you look at everything in nature, everything in nature is a cycle, right? A tree blooms and has leaves and uh, the seeds fall off the tree and then winter comes and everything dies and the seeds grow up again on the tree in the next spring, right? Everything in nature is a cycle. So to me, it seems like it fits with the, what we see in the natural world. And also it removes this horror of eternity. I mean, I don't know if we want to get this deep on this podcast, but that word is pretty incomprehensible for human beings. What? How can we comprehend eternity, something without end? It doesn't seem like that would be a good thing. And reincarnation kind of solves that problem. We never have to comprehend it. These continuous past, continuous lives where we don't remember our past life, or for the most part, there may be some people who claim they can remember their past lives. I'm, I'm not going to comment on that. Right. But the point is, is that it makes it a cycle and something that is actually a joyous thing. Now, of course, in Eastern thought, in Hinduism and Buddhism, the ideal is to become a realized being and basically you turn into pure love and then you exist in the, you know, the ultimate realm, the eternal realm. Again, I'm not going to comment if that's if I think that's the ideal or if I think that's even possible, but that's what they think in Hinduism and Buddhism. But reincarnation makes a lot of sense to me. And it's also, I think, you know, a nice thing to believe in. I wasn't raised Christian, so it's really hard for me to believe in a Christian heaven. And, you know, Judaism doesn't really have a heaven. Judaism ideas of the afterlife are very unclear, shall we say. Right. There's not really a theory out there. Well, it comes back to, I don't know, it's the fear, but it's it's the, the, the unknown. We, we don't know. We've gone through a whole different, uh, you know, various ways it could be, but nobody knows. So I guess it's just to be comfortable, to, first off, to understand that it's going to happen. So um, we just don't know when it's going to happen and not to be afraid. I'm trying not to be afraid because uh, I've already had, you know, one life or death, wife and death uh, situation, but I now have a new granddaughter. So I want to be around longer for her. I know my time is coming. I just don't know when it is. I just want to do the things, you know, age and live it creatively. And like what the book is saying to do so that I can be around and hopefully dance at her wedding. Let's talk about funerals. From what I understand, I heard is that your dad had a living funeral before he died. Maybe you want to share that story. Whose idea was that? That was his idea. So basically what happened was that he got ill. And just before that, I think it actually happened before he got ill, but right around the same time, he had this colleague at Brandeis, a beautiful man who was actually differently abled, named Irv Zola, who was a professor. Everybody loved him. He was such a sweet man, and he really helped people. He was also differently abled. I think, I can't remember why, he might have had polio as a child. One of his legs was much shorter than the other. So he walked with a very severe limp, but everybody loved this guy. And he dropped dead of a heart attack at age 59. And his funeral was just this outpouring of love that everybody talked about what an incredible person he was and how much they loved him and how much he had helped them. 
And my father said, oh my God, like Irv never got to hear any of these amazing tributes and how people felt so deeply grateful to him. So my father said that I want to hear it from people. If that's how they feel, I want to hear it. So, you know, he knew that he was going to die. The living funeral was in February of 1995. He passed away in November of 1995. So it was, you know, do the math, nine months, a little bit less, actually, probably eight months and a bit, a little bit, uh, um, uh, sorry. So it was eight months and a bit uh, before. Before he died and and people were there and they all expressed their love for him and their appreciation and you know as you get in Tuesdays with Maury he was much like Irv he was very beloved by his students he helped lots of people I could tell you stories from throughout his life when I was a kid we would have students come and live with us who couldn't afford to stay in the dorms who were you know didn't have the money to to be able to go to school if my father didn't help them there was all kinds of stories like that from when I was a little kid right through to the end of his life. Another story which he discusses in the book, and I often discuss because it relates to his life work, is he created this uh, therapeutic group, this group to help people again with mental health called Greenhouse in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was a low slash no cost mental health care. So it was started in Cambridge, which has a lot of, you know, a huge financial spread of people. And it was for people, and this was started in the 1970s, when, you know, mental health care wasn't as widespread as it is now. And also it was basically a domain of wealthy people. It was expensive. They, My father started this with like-minded people to offer mental health care to people who couldn't necessarily afford it otherwise. It was a sliding scale. If you could afford to pay nothing, you paid nothing. They literally volunteered their time to give therapy and um, mental health care to people who wouldn't have been able to afford it otherwise. This is something that my father did throughout his life. And, you know, this living funeral was an outpouring of those love and gratitude from his students, from his colleagues, from all sorts of people. There's one photo of it. And he's my father is just glowing with all of these people around him who appreciate him. So it's kind of a neat idea. All the things that you described about your dad, especially what they said at the living funeral, he had it's it sounds as though not sounds, he did have an enormous amount of empathy. And I guess it rubbed off on you because based on all the things you're doing, especially with the upcoming coming event, where did that empathy come from for from your for your dad? Yeah, sure. I can explain that. I mean, my dad talked about this as well. He talks about it in The Wisdom of Maury very specifically. It's also mentioned in Tuesdays with Maury. What happened to my father was, first of all, he grew up very poor, very impoverished in Jewish ghettos in New York in the 19-teens and 1920s. And at a very young age, he lost his mother. His mother died when he was seven or eight years old, I guess, right around that. He was His birthday's in December, so he was actually probably seven when she died. And, you know, for a child of seven to lose your mother is a very traumatic experience. And it was even made more traumatic by an incident which he describes in Tuesdays with Maury, which is that the telegram came from the hospital. My my grandmother died of tuberculosis, which was a problem at that time. And it was in English. And my grandfather didn't even speak English or certainly couldn't read it. His, his native language was Yiddish. And my father had to translate the telegram 
for his father and tell him that his wife, his my father's mother, had passed away. It's obviously hugely traumatic, and it made him incredibly sensitive to the suffering of people in general. And that's what empathy is about, to be sensitive to other people's suffering, other people's troubles. And that was ingrained in him at a very, very young age because of that experience. Wow. You know, losing a parent can be a profound and difficult experience. Can you share a little bit about the green process, what it was like for you after your father passed away? Sure, sure. I mean, for me, it was, it's a little bit hard to describe because it was a little bit um, drawn out, shall we say. My father passed in 1995. My journalistic career in Japan was just starting to take off. And I had a lot of things going on. I was actually managing a rock band in Tokyo at that time, writing articles for the first time, major magazines, New Music Express. And I think I was also writing about film, Hollywood Reporter and uh, Variety. I was writing for all these famous magazines. And um, I think that I, because it was so painful for me, I was so close to my father that I kind of pushed it away. I mean, of course, I didn't do that consciously, and I didn't think I was doing that. But in retrospect, I can see that I probably did that. I, I certainly did that. It's not probably. I certainly did that. And I didn't really properly start to grieve for my father until more than five years after he passed away. And I think that this maybe is not such an unusual thing, that people who lose somebody that they're so close to and they feel so much love for that the pain is just too difficult. People just can't deal with it. And I think that that was the case for me. So I probably started grieving, yeah, five to seven years after my father passed, which is exactly the same time that I found this manuscript. So editing and working through this manuscript was also like hand in hand with me grieving for my father. And it took a really long time. And that's what I would say to people. You know, grief is a very very strong and unusual thing. And don't be surprised if you have to grieve for a loved one for 10 years or 15 years. Don't think that you're going to get over your grief in one year or less, you know. And for me, it was a very, very long process. Did you did you feel triggered while you were editing the book? That oh, was- I, would, I wouldn't use that word. I mean, okay. in, it, in, in some in some ways, it brought up more gr- grief because I could hear my father's voice but in other ways, it was, um, you know, it was comforting to know that I was trying to help his legacy and that his voice lived on and stuff like that. I don't think that, well, it's hard to say. I would say on balance, me working on this manuscript did not make grieving more difficult. In fact, I would say it, it made it easier, but certainly it added a different dimension to it, for sure. There had to be times when you were just reading it and it would make you smile and I guess um just nod your head there might be a little bit of a tear say wow. absolutely absolutely i mean there were times when i could remember my father saying something similar to me either in our discussions about this book or just in life just me growing up and my father's whatever advice or just in conversations and then other times sure other times were a little bit more excruciating that you know to to feel that he's not here anymore to feel the loss from reading the book or editing the book or both. Um, yeah, but that's the way life is, you know, and you have to you have to work through those feelings. Yeah. Um, it took me a long time, as I said. Yeah. And how is how is your mom doing? Is she still with us? 
No, my mom passed away in 2021. So uh, a little less than two years ago now, uh, in November of 2021. She lived to 98. So, you know, she lived a very full, long life. And she was very, like my father, she was very vibrant and full of energy. My mother was also a psychologist. She worked in the psychiatric clinic at MIT, which of course is a world famous university. She wrote papers on psychiatric care that are still being discussed today. And once she retired from MIT, she continued her private practice as a psychologist and very active in the psychoanalytic community here in Boston until she was 91. So that that is a long time to continue working. And I mean, when I say she continued her practice, I mean, she ran a business. She rented the office. She paid the bills. She paid her taxes. She did everything. So she ran a small business in addition to seeing patients until she was 91. And she was very, very vibrant until basically the pandemic. You mentioned the pandemic before, and this is something in line with what you were thinking. The pandemic had a huge negative effect on my mother because by that time she was in an elderly community and they were, you know, petrified that the virus would rip through their community and basically take everyone out. So they kept everyone in their apartments. They delivered food to them. They basically kept everyone isolated for months and months and months. And this had a a real negative effect on my mother's um, mental state. And she deteriorated after that. So if it hadn't been for the pandemic, I think she easily would have lived two or three more years. I expected her to live to 100. She was so vivacious. Like I said, she worked energetically until she was 91. You know, she really she really had the youthful energy, but the pandemic really, really harmed her. Yeah. Yeah. What do you feel are some of the ways we should confront our fears of dying? Right. Well, I mean, it's a tough one. It's kind of like the ultimate mystery and the ultimate battle, right? Um, you know, first of all, you have to confront it straight on. If you if you push it under the covers, if you try and hide and say, oh, that doesn't bother me, then it'll always be lurking there, bothering you despite your denial. So you have to confront it straight on. You have to think about it and, uh, you know, um, sort of meditate on it, if we can use that word, in whatever way is comfortable for you and come up with whatever answer you feel suits you. And if it's a horrifying one, then you're going to have to figure out how to deal with it um, in in a way that, that you're comfortable with. I mean, we could talk about theology for a long time because I studied philosophy. I studied theology, more philosophy than theology. I'm familiar with all of the different theories out there. And to tell you the truth, I think that religious people And by religious people, I mean that in like a real North American sense, Christian religious people are actually happier than people who are atheist or agnostic because they have a very secure view of what is going to happen in the afterlife. It's not my view, particularly. I don't I'm not saying that who's right or wrong by any stretch of the imagination. I could never presume to say anything like that. But I'm just saying that my view is different. But I kind of envy them that they have such a view that they can really feel secure in where they think they're going after death, which is fine for them. But if you don't have that view, it's more of a struggle for sure. It's more of a struggle. Yeah. Now, the wisdom of Maury, it's a testament of your father's legacy. Um, How do you hope that he's going to be remembered both in, in this book and also in general? 
Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I hope that he's remembered for his his real qualities, which were incredibly loving and caring about humanity as a whole and trying to help people and trying to help humanity become better and, you know, live fuller lives. I mean, he really cared about each individual person that he met. I mean, it, it sounds a little, you know, over the top for me to say it about my own father, but I really believe that if everybody in society was like him, that we would have a much nicer society where people really took care of each other. I mean, there's no reason to be rude to somebody else. We never know what kind of challenges somebody else is going through in their life. I mean, we get frustrated. You may think that somebody did something wrong to you or whatever, but every religion teaches us, you know, to be the bigger person, to, you know, Christianity, turn the other cheek, to to love your neighbor. Every religion teaches us that. It's very hard to put into practice. Why is it hard to put into practice? Well, we could discuss that in the in the face of American society or or modern society in general. But I think that my father, in some ways, put those ideals into practice to really care for other people. And I hope, you know, that's how he's remembered. And I think that's how Tuesdays with Maury and this book are received and will be received. Rob Schwartz, I want to thank you so much for being here. You are the editor of um, Wisdom of Maury, the, the Wisdom of Maury, Living and Aging Creatively and Joyfully. It's written by your dad. You edit it. You are a testament to to both your parents because of the empathy that you're showing, you know, helping with the, you know, the event and the mental health and the other projects you're involved with. So you're, you're a good person as well. And by you sharing what your dad wanted the world to, you know, think about themselves and think about their others, you're doing a great thing. And I, and I think that people should just, if you haven't read uh, Tuesdays of Mori, start there as the first part of the bookend and then ease into now, uh, this book here, The Wisdom of uh, Maury. And uh, I, once again, I want to thank you so much for being here on the Executor Health Podcast. Maybe, you know, further down in the future, we'll have you back on because you have so much more. You've been around the world, you've seen it all, and you've probably got tons of more stories and even more wisdom to share. So once again, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others. Post about it on social media or by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. To catch up with all the latest from me, go to davideady.com. There you can follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next time.